The book of Revelation. If I were to ask you what you knew of the book of Revelation, most would point to the prophetic elements. You would reference books like the Left Behind series, the End Times, Armageddon. And yet what most people don't realize is that the probably the most radical and largely most relevant passages in all of the Bible are recorded for us in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Things that don't deal with end times prophecy. In fact, chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, John the Apostle receives this heavenly vision. It's an amazing vision. I encourage you to read it on your own. Of the resurrected Jesus. Presented in glory. And not only is Jesus presented in this awesome way, but he's active. In fact, he's evaluating and critiquing his earthly church. He's walking in the midst of these seven golden lampstands. In fact, in chapters 2 and 3, we find for us a, a series of seven letters that Jesus ends up dictating to John to be delivered to seven different churches located throughout the region of Asia Minor. Aside from the personal application we can draw from Jesus' words, what makes these letters so interesting is that Jesus is not only writing to a specific church during the first century, but he's ultimately addressing seven different movements within church history at large. I don't have time to unpack this all other than to summarize. The first three have largely come and gone. Ephesus, the letter to Ephesus, represented the post-apostolic church. Jesus' letter to Smyrna represented the persecuted church of the second and third centuries. Pergamos, the Byzantine, or, or the state church, this unhealthy marriage of church and state. And while the first three have largely come and gone, they're still active to a degree, the last four we find very prevalent today. Thyatira represents Roman Catholicism. The church in Sardis epitomizes the Reformation, Protestant denominationalism that came afterwards. The church of Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love, represented the faithful church or, or the missional church we have in the 19th and 20th centuries. Lastly, you have the seventh church, Laodicea, representing a more recent phenomenon. And it's this phenomenon that this morning, I want to take some time to unpack. What Jesus says to the seventh and final church, I think, is very relevant to us today. Now, let me give you a little bit of history about Laodicea. A little bit of history that's important. We know Laodicea, the city, was located in the first century about 40 miles south of the city of Philadelphia and some 100 miles east of Ephesus, two of the larger cities. The city of Laodicea itself was well known throughout the world for two important exports. They exported black wool that was prevalent in clothing as well as a powder that was used to treat eye infections. Because Laodicea was located on an important prominent trade route, minimizing the overhead of these exports, the citizens of Laodicea were incredibly wealthy. They were rich. For example, her wealth. In 60 AD, the city was destroyed. Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake. N Emperor Nero offered to send money and resources to help rebuild the city, knowing there would be strings attached. The citizens of Laodicea declined Roman money and instead rebuilt their city on their own. 
quite an accomplishment in that day. Aside from this, Laodicea was part of what was known as a tri-city arrangement, a water arrangement. You had Colossae, which was about 11 miles west, and Heropolis, about six miles south. You see, Laodicea had a, a challenge. It had no natural aquifer, no water source. And as a result, she was completely dependent upon two separate aqueducts that piped in water from these two cities, Colossae and Heropolis. As far as the formation of this church, the church in Laodicea, it would appear she was founded by the Apostle Paul, like many in the region. And according to Colossians 4 verse 15, originally met in the home of a man named Nephus. Four times in his letter to the Colossians, Paul will mention the brethren in Laodicea, as well as, by the way, this church also located in Heropolis. According to Colossians 4, verse 16, Paul had even written, and we don't have it for us, but he had written an epistle to the Laodiceans, a letter to the Laodiceans, a letter he intended to have circulated throughout these three cities. Well, it appears this Laodicean church began strong. I mean, you were founded by the Apostle Paul, right? By the end of the first century, when Jesus is having John dictate a letter, it's clear the church itself had fallen from her glorious origins. In fact, in Jesus' letter to this church, recorded here in Revelation 3, we're going to find Jesus saying nothing commendable of her at all. Nothing good whatsoever. In many ways, the extensive criticisms that Jesus would tag the Laodicean church with presents her as a form of a an anti-Philadelphia. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, the faithful church. This was the unfaithful church. Now, before we get to the text, I'm going to take just a few minutes and establish the historical context for the development of this church in our present day. As the missional church of the 18th and 19th centuries, presented by the Church of Philadelphia, continued to preach the word, the Word of God powerfully, faithfully, sending missionaries globally. The 20th century not only changed the world as we know it, but challenged the church in three dynamic ways, dramatic ways. For starters, you had the horrors, the human horrors, the atrocities that was witnessed globally by two world wars, yielding approximately 100 million casualties that coupled with brutal and seemingly pointless conflicts in Vietnam, Korea, the 20th century, conflict and war. What this would produce would be several generations of Western, originally Christian men that were completely disillusioned when it came to matters of God, spiritual things. We saw a decrease in church attendance, likely for the first time. Then, in an attempt to deal with the fallout of this rapidly changing post-Christian culture, the church ended up convoluting her purpose. And here's how. The church in the 20th century, to deal with what was happening, became politically and socially active. Before this, the church isolated itself. Now it engaged. Sadly... As a consequence, over the last hundred years, the evangelical church in the West 
has become known more for what she's against than what she actually advocates for. Let me give you one example of this, practically speaking. Prohibition. When men came home from World War I, they found a church that was more interested in telling them what they could or could not drink than seeking to deal with the genuine spiritual needs they were experiencing from the atrocities that they saw in the trenches of Europe. Evangelists, like Billy Sunday, railed against alcohol without ever speaking or addressing deeper spiritual wounds that were driving men to such destructive lifestyles. Now, the strategy was sincere. I'm not knocking it. But the strategy ended up turning off even more people to Christianity. Aside from these two developments, the other challenge the church would experience in the 20th century would arise as secular progressives eventually began to use science to attack the reliability of the Bible. In 1925, there was a court case heard in the little town of Dayton, Tennessee. This little court case would be thrust into the national spotlight. The state of Tennessee versus John Thomas Scopes, which is today known as the Scopes Monkey Trial, would pit the Bible and science against one another. And because the arguments presented by the prosecution and their witnesses seeking to defend a literal understanding and interpretation of the Bible were so poorly constructed, not only would the theory of evolution gain credibility immediately, but the reliability of Scripture would wane in the public opinion. In the end, this and other similar developments would create the framework by which the philosophy of relativism would eventually seep into the mainstream American society, culture, more importantly, academia. And with no moral truth giver, mankind was left to ascertain if anything was true at all. The challenges facing the church in the 20th century were simple but profound. The challenge was the sole question. How do you reach a culture of people that are disillusioned with God because of the horrors of war, that are alienated from church because of politics and activism? How do you reach a culture that's no longer confident that the Bible can even be trusted at all? Well, faced with the challenge, two strategies, two approaches emerged. First, you still have the Church of Philadelphia active. And this church remained faithful to her mission. This church continued to preach the Word of God, seeking to reach the lost through missions and evangelism. In turn, there were movements, like the one we're a part of, Calvary Chapel, in the late 60s and early 70s that intentionally rejected church traditionalism by modernizing its style to reach a changing culture, bringing the changeless gospel to a changing word, world. It was a motto. You had men like Pastor Chuck Smith who dropped the, the uber-pretentiousness of denominationalism by encouraging hippies to come to church as they were. Modern music was incorporated into worship. These church leaders emphasized the amazing nature of God's grace, emphasized the dependency on the power of the Holy Spirit and not legalism, 
and most importantly, continued the expositional teaching of God's Word. Pastor Chuck Smith's motto, it's what we employ here, is a heart to simply teach God's Word simply. And well, that approach resonated within a culture, as mentioned, longing for truth. And yet, sadly, another approach would eventually emerge and gain steam, more particularly in the latter part of the 20th century. If the Protestant Reformation's problem was theology over, well, reaching people, and the missional church's success was the balance of theology and reaching people, this final movement, represented by the Laodicean church, tragically has emphasized reaching people over theology. And it's, and it's in historical context, you can understand why this would happen, all things considered. Whether you call this particular movement or approach the seeker-friendly movement, or with a more modern twist, the attractional church model, Leaders of this particular strategy sought to intentionally create a church with a culture designed to be inviting, accepting, entertaining, even appealing to the unbeliever. Again, what's the challenge? A lot of people disillusioned with church, a lot of people leaving God, a lot of people want nothing to do with it. So how do we reach them? Well, a, a strategy emerged. Well, let's create a non-threatening environment. As megachurch pastor Andy Stanley boasts, the goal was to be church for the unchurched. While these church models, with their high-tech and slick marketing, have been wildly successful at attracting a crowd, in order to create, though, this non-threatening environment, there has been a drawback. And the drawback has been these churches have largely abandoned Bible teaching. They've minimized doctrinal absolutes. In fact, you will rarely find from the pulpit of these churches topics like sin or hell or, or eternal judgment ever being communicated or explained. In fact, they're largely avoided on purpose in exchange for self-help antidotes. Now, though I don't want to be audacious enough to say that Jesus' letter to the church of Laodicea is solely pertinent to the seeker-friendly movement. I think it's probably more accurate to the evangelical movement largely in the church. There is, though, no question that the criticism that we find in Jesus' letter to Laodicea is profoundly applicable. Now, our purpose this morning is not to call out a specific church. Instead, the purpose this morning of, of examining these things is to remind ourselves what type of church we need to be by examining the characteristics of a church that Jesus found to be detestable. Let's read through the letter. Verse 14 of Revelation 3. Jesus, and again, it's amazing. These are Jesus' words. He says, and to the church, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, this being the pastor, the overseer, the messenger of the church of Laodiceans, write, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, 
I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. Jesus continuing, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I have overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. First thing we notice about this church in Laodicea is that while active, I know your works. She lacked distinction. If you're a note taker, you might want to jot that down. While active, this church lacked distinction. Notice again, Jesus, verse 15, he says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold nor hot. And then Jesus summarizes it by saying, you're lukewarm. In this initial criticism, Jesus uses here an illustration that the citizens of Laodicea would have clearly understood. Very applicational. As I mentioned, the city of Laodicea was dependent on two separate aqueducts to pipe in water. That tri-city agreement. Water had to be pumped from Colossae and from Herapolis. Interestingly enough, that by the time the cold water that originated in the higher elevations of Colossae and the hot water that began in the hot springs of Heropolis, by the time either reached Laodicea, the water itself was characteristically what? Lukewarm. It was no longer cold. It was no longer hot. Because the distance the water had to travel from uh, each locale to get to the city What had initially started as either piping hot or freezing cold had leveled off, well, to the temperature of its surroundings. In a sense, the water had become room temperature. It was neither hot nor was it cold. It was simply lukewarm. Tragically, the church of Laodicea was the church going through the motions. There was a work happening, just not one Jesus was pleased with. Spiritually speaking, they lack no zeal for the things of God, no heart for righteous living, no passion in following Jesus to be his witness in the world around them. While, to be fair, the Laodiceans weren't full-blown heathens, they weren't cold, they also weren't fully committed to Jesus, hot. You might say this church modeled what many of us refer to as cultural Christianity. You know, when a person claims to be a Christian simply because they go to church on Sunday. By the way, you're no more a Christian because you go to church than you're a car because you live in a garage. It's a flaw in thinking. You see, for these people, Christianity was a one-day activity and not a weekly lifestyle. They checked their faith at the door. They were hypocrites. Spiritual life, things that contribute to that prayer and the worship of God and studying His Word, it was compartmentalized to just a Sunday morning church experience. 
in a sense, these Laodiceans, to borrow another phrase, they were fence-sitters. Though they had enough church to feel morally superior and good about themselves, they had too much of the world to really reap the benefits of a genuine relationship with Jesus. Their spiritual lives you might call tepid. Spiritual indifference had spawned spiritual compromise. The brutal reality is that there was nothing about this church that differentiated them from the world around them. This is what Jesus is getting at when he calls them lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. There's no distinction. In their honest attempt to be relevant with the world, they had sacrificed the very thing that made them unique, different, distinct. They'd lost their flavor, salt without flavor, uniqueness. Before I continue, just in in a way of personal application, I don't want you to answer this out loud. As a matter of fact, just maybe take this and marinate on it on your own. Does your life look any different than your unbelieving friends? Is there anything that makes you different than the world around you? Do people even know you're a follower of Jesus? Now, this seeker-friendly methodology... One that intends to create an environment designed to reach the loss. And by the way, reaching the loss is noble. It's admirable. (laughs) It's a calling. However, the tactic, it also fosters the perfect conditions for something terrible. The seeker-friendly movement, this attractional church model, it fosters a condition whereby a spiritually compromised believer can satisfy, they can go to church and satisfy the need to feel spiritual without ever being challenged to be spiritual. I'd go to church and feel real good about myself, but never grow, never develop. You see, lukewarmness thrives in such a circumstance without challenge. It is incredible to consider that Jesus would go so far as to even prefer this church be cold than remain in a lukewarm condition. He says, I could wish you were warm. I wish you were cold. And why is this the case? You know, unlike those that are blatantly hostile to the things of God, spiritual indifference, it's the most dangerous of all conditions because it has the tendency to lull someone in the false sense of their own spiritual security. God is pleased with me. Is he? The second thing we should note about this church was that she was characterized by self-deception. Characterized by self-deception. Verse 17, Jesus says, You say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. Which is what you say. You do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You know, the alarming thing about this church was the real disconnect between what they believed God thought of them and the reality of what God actually thought about them. Did you see the disconnect there? In a sense, they were delusional. Because they were falsely equating material prosperity as the evidence of spiritual blessing, this church had reached the false conclusion that God was pleased with them 
when in actuality he was deeply sickened by them. While the Laodiceans generally believed they were spiritual and effective because they were rich. This word rich, it means to be abounding in resources. And wealthy or richly supplied. To the point that they were in need of nothing. Literally, they were in need of no one. Jesus is clear that they were actually wretched. You think you're rich, you're wretched. You think you're wealthy, you're miserable. In need of nothing, you're poor, blind, and naked. Sadly, I believe many churches today, and again, I'm not going to name any of them, and to a degree, it's something we should all internalize. I think a lot of churches are self-deceived. You know, how do we often point to success? How do we point to blessing? Well, in the American church, we point to attendance numbers. How many people are coming? That's the mark of a really successful church, or how much money they have. And yet what we see from the letter that Jesus writes to the church of Laodicea is that these are not the metrics that Jesus uses to evaluate his church. Consider that Jesus found the church of Smyrna, which by the way was a church extremely poor, and the church of Philadelphia, which was a church with little strength, much more commendable than he did this church of Laodicea, a church that was rich and in need of nothing. They were self-deceived. Thirdly, the church of Laodicea, and this ties into the self-deception, they were biblically ignorant. Like Notice, one of the core components of Jesus' criticism which, by the way, explains why the Laodiceans were self-deceived and off in their own assessment. Look at it again, a, a coupling. Jesus says, you say, right? You notice that. But then he turns around and he says, but you do not know. You know, it's true that this church was delusional as to the true nature of their spiritual condition. They thought they were rich, but they were bankrupt. But what had fostered such a, a false perception of self? I hope you know, when it comes to Christianity, Christian beliefs, your spiritual condition before God, how you live a life of godliness, matters of how the church should function, the way in which believers should reach the lost, all of these things. I hope you know that what you say about them, your opinions, really don't matter at all. Like when it's all said and done, what matters more than anything else is not what you say about them, but what maybe Jesus has said about them. Like this is why it's so vitally important that a church teach the Bible. Not just teach from the Bible, because there's a difference. Not just pulling a verse here or a nugget there, but actually teaching the Bible so you can't avoid things. Whether it's, it's through, through chapters or through books, however you want to go about it, the reason, the importance of teaching the Bible centers upon the idea that when a church doesn't teach the Bible, the people in the church become susceptible to self-deception. You see, the Laodiceans believed that their physical riches were to be seen as evidence of spiritual favor when that position had no scriptural backing. They did not know how. They didn't know as a direct result of a lack of biblical knowledge or understanding. Here's a key truth you'd be wise to never forget. Because the Bible is totally, absolutely 
brutally honest about you, your spiritual condition. It'll never lie to you. It's the truth. The Bible then is the only place that you can go to get a proper assessment of how you're doing. You know, in James chapter 1, we find this exhortation. James writes, Therefore, let us lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law, not of killed joy, but of liberty, and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed. And what he does. May I ask, what does the Bible say about you? Well, it's clear that apart from Jesus, apart from his work on the cross, apart from his amazing grace, apart from him, well, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Kind of an uplifting message, isn't it? You know, that fact is one of the main reasons that the Bible isn't taught in many seeker-friendly churches. You know, for the unbeliever, and by the way, let me, let me parse that. If you're a believer, apart from Jesus, you're, you're, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. But in Christ, you're redeemed, you're a child of the Most High God. You are forgiven. You are restored. You are made new. You are bought with a price. You are loved. You have hope and joy. You are clothed in righteousness. Quite different, right? But for the unbeliever, the Bible, well, let's be real and honest. The Bible has some very difficult and hard things to say. Let's not sugarcoat that. That's why churches aren't teaching through Leviticus on Sunday. What the Bible has to say to such a person is not friendly, especially to the godless. You see, contrary to what the world has to say about such things, God does not accept you if you're an unbeliever. He does not accept you the way that you are. He's not cool with it. He's not down with the status quo. In fact, God deliberately sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross. Why? To transform you into someone completely different. That's the good news. God's plan for you is to change you into someone you're not. Aside from the fact, attending a church that teaches the Word not only protects from self-deception, but it's God's Word that actively protects us against a tendency for spiritual indifference. One of my favorite Psalms. You don't have to get too far into the book to find it. Psalms 1, the first three verses. 
We're told, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is where? In the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. What results? He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. You know, I have found that it is virtually impossible to attend a church where you're taught God's word and still live a life of indifference and compromise. Let me couch that. You can attend for a little while, but not long term. You see, the word of God, and this is an experiment we've been doing for like the last six years. I'm telling you, it's true. The word of God does one of two things. When it's faithfully communicated and articulated, when it's preached, when it happens from the pulpit, one of two things, always, without fail, the Word of God either drives a man who's in sin to repentance, and that work happens in his own time, and as God wills, through his grace, or it drives that man away from the church that's preaching such a message. One of those two things always happens. At Calvary 316, you're either growing in grace or you're leaving. It doesn't help church attendance. <laughs> but it's what we're called to be. You know, finally, we see from the text that Laodicea was a church so self-centered that they were no longer Christ-focused. I'll say that again. They were so self-centered, they were no longer Christ-focused. Notice the Laodiceans' self-evaluation and their pride was rooted, look at verse 17, when they boasted again, I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing. And yet what's interesting about that is in verse 20, Jesus then says to them, okay, you do this, but I stand at the door and knock. <laughs> what this means, what this tells us, is that this church was so self-consumed with what they had, that they were completely oblivious to the reality Jesus was on the outside looking in, wanting in. They were focused more on what we might say ministry resources than Jesus. In the end, the church was more about them, what they were doing, than about him and what he wanted to do. The word Laodiceans, it's an interesting word. It's actually a, a combination word in the Greek that means, this is what the word means, it means the rights of, of the people. How fitting, right? In this church, the people ruled, and Jesus and his word took a back seat. You know, it's a truth that the, the degree to which a church is man-centered is the degree to which that church will no longer be Christ-centered. And I should add that the degree to which you are me-centered has a direct correlation to the amount you're dependent on Jesus. Tragically, instead of asking Jesus what he wanted his church to be, instead of asking Jesus how he wanted his church to use their resources to reach the lost, instead of seeking Jesus to discover what he found pleasing, these Laodiceans, well, they had devised their own church model with the intention of reaching men by pleasing man. Jesus' warning to this church is severe. And I think that might even be an understatement. 
and verse 16, Jesus says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You know, people ask me, Calvary 3.16, is that because of like John 3.16? I'm like, no, it's because of Revelation 3.16. We're not the people God wants us to be. We'll get vomited out of his mouth. It's a really uplifting idea. You know, the idea of vomit here, this action term, it literally, in the language, it's the violent expulsion from the body of that which is making the body sick. You know, this type of ministry approach, the seeker-friendly idea, the type of, of, of spiritual result that we find, it makes Jesus ill. Like He's not pleased with it. And let me just explain why. You know, contrary to the popular opinion, nowhere in Scripture is the church called to be a hospital for the sick. You've heard that phrase, haven't you? I've heard it all the time. Growing up, I've heard it over and over and over. The church, the church isn't supposed to be a place for healthy people. The church is supposed to be a hospital for sick people. I get it. I understand it, but I disagree. Because the church, at least scripturally speaking, isn't called to be a hospital for the sick. It's called to be a prepping center where believers are equipped to go into the world and care for the sick. There's a distinction to that. You know, it was in the Old Covenant, that model, the Old Testament, whereby the world was instructed to do what? To come to a locale, come to the temple, come to the tabernacle to encounter God. That's how the lost were to come. And yet in the new covenant designed by Jesus, it's much different. Instead of the world being encouraged to come to one place, Jesus makes us his temple. He creates a temple in the hearts of men and women who then what does he do? He sends into the world. It's not about coming to encounter God. It's I'm going to fill people and send you out. So that people can encounter me when they encounter you. It's different. You see, what the seeker-friendly model, what makes it so disgusting to Jesus, is that while it might yield high conversion rates, it's making the church, in, in, its, in its like larger macroscope, it makes the church sick. And let me explain. Because the church, because in, through such a model, is being derelict to fulfill God-given duties by teaching God's Word to equip believers. She, in turn, creates a scenario. Instead of me encouraging you to go out and reach people for the gospel, the exhortation, you go out and just bring them here and I'll tell them about Jesus, what happens is that it creates a scenario where believers are no longer doing their job because the church is doing it for them. You see, the church, in such a dynamic, is not only failing to equip Christians, but it's doing their jobs for them and in the process fostering a lukewarm culture. The simple fact is when a church focuses on reaching the lost instead of equipping saints to reach the lost, the body becomes ill. See, for a church to be healthy, the emphasis of the church service should be on equipping believers for their ministry, whatever that is, by teaching them God's word. 
And then the role of the saints, the pew sitter, is to be blessed, to be ministered, to be equipped, to be filled, and then to go out into their world and their ministry that God gave them to fulfill, to reach the lost with the gospel. That's why we say every Sunday, if we remember, that ministry at Calvary 316 takes place when you go out those doors into your world with something you were taught and equipped with. And if you're not, our ministry fails. The Great Commission was given by Jesus to individual believers, not the institutional church. It should be noted that following so many difficult criticisms, Jesus begins his closing with this line in verse 19. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. You know, after all that Jesus says, all of these rebukes and criticisms, he makes it abundantly known that his love for this church is what motivated him to speak the truth. And you can hear his passion, can't you? Verse 20, when he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear, if you open, I'll come in, I'll dine. While these Laodiceans had been doing church without Jesus, well, it could be easily remedied, couldn't it? What did they need to do? Hear his voice and open the door. All they had to do was let him in. You know, in the original language, the word knock, it's in the active tense. It's a continual knocking. Jesus is at the door. Friend, he's at the door of your heart maybe this morning. Gently and continually knocking. He's not going to kick down the door. You've got to open it. You've got to let him in. But also notice how he knocks. He says, I stand at the door and knock. Then he says, if anyone hears my voice. You, you see that connection? The knocking and hearing his voice. There is no question. It is Jesus' word. It is his voice. It's God's word that does the knocking to our hearts. It's why we teach God's word. And why was Jesus knocking? He says, I will come in and dine with him. This phrase, dine with him, I love it. It spoke of an intimate, a, a, a relational exchange. In Eastern culture, the act of eating with someone, it was personal. It was a genuine commonality. It, was, it expressed oneness. What I'm putting into me, you're putting into you, and in the process, we're becoming one. See, Jesus, he's knocking and he's speaking, not because he wants anything from you, but because he wants you. He doesn't want anything. All he wants is a relationship. In closing, please don't forget who was doing the knocking. Jesus opens his letter. He says, these things says the amen. The word amen, it literally means so be it, or that's true. This church needed to get back to treating Jesus' word as truth. He also calls himself the one knocking, the faithful and true witness. See, this church needed to remember that the only way to reach the lost was not through creative marketing or relevant presentations or a diluted form of Christianity. The, the remedy was the faithful and true witness. It was more of Jesus. Isn't that what the world needs? More of Jesus? To do that, this church needed to return to being Christ-centric, to let him in. Finally, Jesus refers to himself as the beginning of the creation of God. Now, this verse has been twisted by cults to mean what it doesn't. The word beginning it doesn't mean the first in sequence. The word beginning, 
It, it means it speaks to origin. Jesus was the first in, in origin. The whole point is that the church needed to keep here the main thing, the main thing. Pleasing Jesus. The origin of it all is infinitely more important than pleasing men. One day I have to stand before God, me and the elders, for what we do with this church, how we lead this church. And the metric I'll be evaluated is not by how many people came. It's by whether or not we were faithful with the calling of handling His church the way He wants us to. You know, you can't help but notice, in spite of the strong words, that there was potential. This church could still be used in mighty ways. In addition to responding to His voice and opening the door, all they had to do was be zealous or burn with zeal. All they had to do was repent, just change their mind, change the strategy, let Him in. The church of Laodicea, Jesus gives the strongest of all criticisms to. But how awesome it is, He gives the most glorious promises. In verses 18 and 20, Jesus gives a list. He says, I counsel you, buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. The pursuit of heavenly treasure instead of temporal riches. He says, I'll give you white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Jesus is offering them everlasting righteousness instead of the black garments of self-confidence and foolish pride. Again, Laodicea was known for their black cloth. Aside from that, he also promises to anoint their eyes with eye salve. Again, something the Laodiceans were known for so that they might see spiritual sight in place of blindness. Verse 21, he, he also promises to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Isn't that a radical promise? How did Jesus overcome? How do we do the same? Well, Jesus overcame by being obedient to the word of his father. And that's how we overcome, by being obedient to his word. And he closes. And, and this kind of places this in a more universal application. Not just for the little church of Laodicea in the first century, or what this represents as far as the church movements go. But he says, to him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And as I look around, he places this in the singular. He who has an ear. So even if you've lost one, you still have another. It's still applicational. In a famous sermon titled, An Earnest Warning Against Lukewarmness, Charles Spurgeon, he described the lukewarm church the following way. And this is lengthy. Let me read it for you. He says, they have prayer meetings, but there are Few present, for they like quiet evenings at home. When more attend the meetings, they are still very dull, for they do their prayer, praying very deliberately and are afraid of being too excited. They are content to have all things done decently and in order, but vigor and zeal are considered to be vulgar. They may have schools, Bible classes, preaching rooms, and all sorts of agencies, but they might as well be without them, for no energy is displayed and no good comes from them. They have deacons and elders who are excellent pillars of the church. If the chief quality of pillars is to stand still and exhibit no motion or emotion. The pastor does not fly very far in preaching the everlasting gospel. And he certainly has no flame of fire in his preaching. The pastor may be a shining light of eloquence, but he certainly is not a burning light of grace, setting men's hearts on fire. Everything is done in half-hearted, listless, dead 
and alive way, as if it did not matter much whether it was done or not. Things are respectably done. The rich families are not offended, the skeptical parties are appeased, and the good people are not quite alienated. Things are made pleasant all around. The right things are done, but as to doing them with all your might and soul and strength, a Laodicean church has no notion of what that means. They are not so cold as to abandon their work or to give up their meetings for prayer or reject the gospel. They are neither hot for the truth nor hot for conversions nor hot for holiness. They are not fiery enough to burn the stubble of sin nor zealous enough to make Satan angry nor fervent enough to make a living sacrifice of themselves upon the altar of their God. They are neither cold nor hot. You know, beyond this passage being a healthy reminder of what kind of church we want to be by looking at the type of church Jesus found disgusting, the application, personally, it's real for each of us. I'll let the Holy Spirit, again, this is the Holy Spirit's thing, I'll let Him apply this to you, the text, however He wills. But I will say this in closing. A lukewarm church only exists when the people who make up that church are themselves lukewarm Christians. And may that never be characteristic of us. So, Father, Lord, we ask that through your Holy Spirit you spark...